Welcome to the Angel Investors Network podcast, the first national angel group founded online in 1997, dedicated to perpetuating free enterprise, capitalism, and supporting the American dream. In addition, Angel Investors Network is the organization behind the powerful Mastermind Investment Club, dedicated to harnessing the philosophy of a mastermind to increase success with their investment portfolio. Cliff Locks is a serial entrepreneur with three successful exits and an angel investor. On the podcast, Cliff brings together the most successful privately held companies in America to share with you how they grow their businesses, and you can too. And now, here's your host, Cliff Locks. I'd like to welcome Tony Pompliano to the Angel Investors Network podcast. You have an extensive bio. Let me share a few highlights. Tony is the CEO and president of Anexio, a company on the Inc. 500 list of America's fastest growing privately held companies. Anexio is transforming the IT industry by building high performance technology, infrastructure to serve the complex computing needs of the world's most innovative companies. The company provides this mission critical infrastructure across eight tier three SOC-2 certified data centers and an IT solution center in a nationwide IP network. Anexio's revenue has grown over 1,400% since 2013 and continues to accelerate as the company builds its new infrastructure for the emerging technologies. Tony, how'd you get started? I was fortunate enough to get a job while I was still in college in the telecommunication industry. I mean, I've been in technology management ever since now, about 35 years, and it was a time during that industry where it was about to be disrupted. And I happened to work for a company that was acquired by a young upstart firm called MCI. For older uh, readers and listeners would uh, remember MCI was a long distance provider that was a competitive alternative to AT&T, who at that time was the Bell system. As a result of being acquired by MCI, it's going back into the early 80s. This was pre-antitrust suit against AT&T, pre-equal access, pre-all kinds of, of restrictions that prevented people from competing. Um, I, I learned a lot about technology, a lot about marketing, innovative solutions, and probably most importantly, a lot about serving customers. Uh, and being a uh, an advocate for, for customers both internally and externally. And so it's been a strong foundation for virtually everything I've done since. Well, that's exciting because I was an MCI customer, one of the earlier, and uh, your career is amazing. If you think back 35 years ago uh, in telecommunications and the leadership there and MCI's brilliance of doing, you know, acquiring these entrepreneurial companies and telecommunication really led forth the opportunity to build out the amazing online, you know, infrastructure that we have at this point. And then I see there's a, a tremendous amount of fiber that's been laid on the railroad right of ways. And a lot of that goes back to our strong partners in telecommunications. What did you like most about the work you do? You know, I take my 35 year career, roughly half of it's been working for two Fortune 50 companies, a combination MCI and AT&T, very large companies at the time and, and an enormous number of resources and lots of strength in terms of everything from service offerings to pricing. And, and I had, uh, you know, what, I, what most people would think of as pretty important jobs, you know, C-level business responsibilities in those organizations. But there's nothing like the gratification that comes along with building and running a small 
company that you hope to make large. An enormous amount of accountability that's required. It requires you to use all kinds of skills and tools out of your tool set, if you will, in terms of recruiting mm-hmm. support and expertise. Uh, my job, I'm, I'm responsible for, uh, I like to, to sort of joke about, my job is to make sure we never run out of money. Right, so that means that I, I'm doing all the fundraising and certainly the face of the company in that regard. But I'm also uh, responsible for ensuring that we're self-sufficient, that we're not dependent upon raising of that capital to continue to operate. So we're a, a, not only a fast-growing company but a profitable one. That requires a certain level of business acumen and discipline to be able to do that. We are been a company who is growing primarily through acquisition, although we we organically grow uh, pretty quickly as well. We We've been taking advantage of some inefficiencies in the marketplace, uh, doing what we call a consolidation in the lower middle market, meaning small regionally focused companies that are potentially struggling with the transformation that goes on with technology and the management of it. And we were able to acquire those firms and integrate them into our business and, and run them more profitably than they would have been otherwise. Um, and so all of that really relates to the idea that I, I get to touch a lot of different parts of the business. I'm involved in the acquisitions. I'm involved in the, the integration, the operations, the overall strategy to, for fundraising. And for that part, it, it doesn't feel like work. I'm very passionate about it. I am frankly scared the heck out of my wife because she talks about one day when we retire and I talk about never retiring because I'm having so much fun. Well, I was excited your son is involved in the business, Do I, am I correct? Uh, he is. He's, he's okay. a board member and uh, an advisor as we uh, sort of explore and transformation that's going on with uh, blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies and things. He's a private equity investor and has a pretty good pulse on innovation, if you will. And so we've been leaning on him uh, quite a bit. I think he's pointing you towards a very, very positive direction at this point. We're looking at the blockchain and bringing that technology into IT at this point and controlling some of the issues that are taking place, you know, with those are trying to break into our networks, you know, globally at this point in time, especially some of the larger entities. And it's sad, but some of the nefarious governments overseas are actually taking an active participation. I think blockchain will help with that. Don't know if it's going to help completely with DDoS, you know, type of situations where it's creating havoc at times when somebody wants to take somebody's server down. I know you guys have resources in place and the certified IT people to help clients work through some issues that they may come into at this point. What is the best advice you've ever received? You know, the, pr- probably the best advice that I received didn't come in one sort of snippet of information, but came over the course from a number of people, which is ultimately to, to trust your instincts. Right. To, you know, I think I've been blessed with uh, what I like to refer to fondly as a good BS antenna okay. of sorts and has served me well. I think instincts come in a variety of forms. Some of that comes from previous experiences and some people refer to that as experience. It could be mistakes that you've made that sort of help you be better prepared for future opportunities. I had in that transformation I made from working for a couple of Fortune 50 companies to an entrepreneurial environment where, you know, it was much more resource limited success, not only of, of my own career, but the companies in which I was leading were much more dependent upon me independent, led me to believe about how I should get any confidence tacking things, right, in terms of new adventures or, or pursuing uh, opportunities that maybe represent a certain amount of risk that maybe otherwise I would have avoided. 
gaining confidence that uh, allows you to have confidence with your instincts is uh, really valuable advice. The other valuable advice that I got, and I say this in somewhat of a humoristic way, is uh, it was my first CEO job, and I was a member of the board of directors, but not the chairman. I was being nominated to become chairman, and and the board, which was made up of seven different uh, private equity and venture investors, one of them pulled me to the side and said, "Don't ever forget how to count." <laughs> and I and I I wasn't quite sure what he meant by that. There's seven of us and one of you. That's eight, right? So you want to make sure you always have five friends, right? And uh, that's probably pretty good advice too. And, and that's uh, again humoristic, but it's a, it's an indication of you can. I'm a contrarian by nature. Mm -hmm. I like to challenge the status quo. I believe that some of the best investment opportunities people have made uh, incorrect assumptions that need to be challenged of sorts. And uh, to do that, you have to have back to those instincts. You have to have a little bit of that little foresight, but you also have to have some stamina to sort of fight through the resistance that you're going to get. And you have to do that and be mindful of that no one of us is as strong as all of us, meaning you can't do it on your own. No matter how good you think you are at any particular skill or function, you do need help and assistance and the very best of us need to um, have people who are motivated to, to continue to see how the company succeed. That requires a bit of skill in terms of uh, handling people, and, uh, ensuring that you're transparent in your communication, and continuing to keep people on your side, if you will, relative to what you're trying to accomplish. I, I agree with you completely there. I was reading an article from Warren Buffett yesterday, and I see a lot of the wisdom that you have in yourself is something that Warren has shared with the community on how he builds a team and communicates and straight shooter, easy to get along with, is very, very aware of his surroundings. You know, is it value oriented at this point? And are you talking to me straight? So I, you know, I salute you for some excellent skills on that end. You have a large team, you know, so the goal is to find out more about, you know, you're mentoring our youth at this point in time, you know, young people that are in the industry. I mean, they could be in their 30s, I'd suggest. Tell me about some of your what process and helping them grow, mature, build the confidence that you have, you know, because you're a seasoned executive. And how does that work for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I personal standpoint, I, I am the father and my wife and I are, have five children, five sons, and they range 22 to 30 years old. And I think about mentoring, I, I can't think of a better, more important role that I have than mentoring my own children. When you think about that, you, you have to put yourself in the context of whether it's as a father or husband or as a CEO, what is your role and how are you going to be measured as to whether you're performing well? So as a parent, it's very clear, right? I, my kids have heard me say this a thousand times, which is my job is to raise you to be young, productive adults. And if you like me, that's a bonus. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not joking about that. I want them to love me mm -hmm. and, they, and I believe they do. But decisions I make as a parent are consistent with what I think it takes for them to be young, productive adults. And what I've learned as I've matured as a parent myself is that what I'm also doing is raising future parents, right? Mm -hmm. Not just adults. And uh, so if you sort of extend that sort of theory, if you will, that metaphor to being a CEO, right? If I think about what my job is, and I think in generally fairly simple terms, right? In terms of I want to create an environment where we have uh, strong and clear values, mm -hmm. right? And that requires me to to spend a, a lot of time not only talking about those values, but reinforcing them with our actions. There's no more important thing that I do than demonstrating our values through that action, right? So it's 
it's one thing, you know, an informal joke that goes around about companies' mission statements, and those people will go look up the mission statement for Enron, which started out with honesty, integrity, blah, 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 right? It's kind of humorous at this point, right? Um, you have to live those values in a way that help guide people making decisions. And there's no better time than to use those values than when it's necessarily popular and sometimes uncomfortable, right? And, and so mentoring for me starts with that, meaning that we have a clear set of values that guide us. We, we actually call them our radar. And the radar is an acronym that stands for the rewarding, accountable, discipline, right, well, across the board. So, we, so it's easy to remember. Mm -hmm. And what we try to do is, uh, particularly, again, when we're making decisions that sometimes aren't what's best for any one individual, but what's best for the team is reinforce that. The second piece of it is, is that one of the things that I certainly have benefited from along my career is having some really good mentors. And some people, frankly, that I worked for were difficult to work for because they were very demanding. But those are the people that I learned the most from. And so where I, I don't like to think that I'm a difficult person to work for, I do think being holding people accountable is really important. And I do believe uh, treating them with respect, but being firm with them is important so that they can grow, right? I, I use a lot of metaphors and, and I think all good leaders are good storytellers, right? I think mm -hmm. you're able to translate things into visuals for people. And I like to use sports because that's a fairly commonly understood theme, if you will. In sports, the very, very best athletes, they don't want to be coached by somebody who likes them. You want to be coached by somebody who makes them better. So as it goes to mentoring young professionals, I, I offer a lot of advice. Well, one is, look, you should find a job you're really passionate about. Because if you're passionate about it, there's a couple of things that will happen. It won't feel like work. And two, you won't be talking about work-life balance. Because by design, your life will be out of balance, in my brain. When you're passionate about something, and that doesn't mean it has to be work. It can be passionate about a hobby. It can be passionate about an aspect of your life that's outside of work. But when you're passionate about something, that's all you can think about, right? It's all you want to do. I've got lots of friends who spend a lot of time planning their next vacation. And, and what I jokingly say is you're, what you're doing is you're wasting your life. You should be enjoying the life you're in. And vacations are good, but I don't, I don't spend my time worrying about my next vacation. I'm enjoying what I do. And I'm not a workaholic in the, in the context of the word, right? I have a pretty good balance. I have five children, a beautiful wife, and perfect mate for me. I'm married 34 years. I've got, I'm, old, I'm the oldest of six children in my family. I'm close to all of my siblings and my mom, who I'm blessed to have alive, right? I'm an uncle. I'm a cousin. So I got a lot of roles to play. There's lots of gratification that comes from the work that I do. By the way, whether it's in my family or, or directly where I work, uh, I wouldn't trade for anything. I think it's fantastic. I mean, family is very, very important. Uh, our young millennials at this point are just starting to figure out what does it look like on that mix between work and leisure. You see those really understand they want to run something at some point are leaning towards finding a mentor like yourself and absorbing and listening and asking intelligent questions. And it opens up doors to opportunities that they normally wouldn't have uh, by having a rich, confident mentor to be able to be part of their lives. So, you know, one of my programs that I run, you know, in the scouting community is to try to help match up our youth with mentors that can help them and guide them in business. It works the same way. So I agree with you. I think it's a really important part and families, the key behind it. So one of the things that I, I constantly preach to people is I know mm -hmm. a lot of ways to make money and that's mm -hmm. generally what is motivating a lot of people right if you're a capitalist you 
you sort of want to keep score by doing the pursuit of money. But but here, here's the thing. Of all the ways I know how to make money, none of them are possible unless you're competent, right? I don't know any way to make money unless you know what you're doing. And so to be competent, you have to work at it, right? And so there's a, when I was a kid, I grew up in the greater New York area, was mm -hmm. born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, my first uh, six or seven years was in New York City. And and uh, every one of my childhood friends wanted to own a bar, right? Because that was kind of the thing to do when you're that age. Well, the reality is if anybody who's ever worked at a bar, they don't want to own a bar, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so I, I would joke with them. I said, well, you may want to go like work at a bar for a while to see if you really want to work. My grandparents who owned a bar restaurant in New Jersey for, for 30 plus years, it's hard work. My uh, grandmother used to think her day off was going to the farmer's market to buy produce, right? That was sort of the, it was a seven by 24 job by and large. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, to your point about the millennials and the, and I've got a group of them that are in my family, right? There, there's this belief that seniority doesn't matter. And I'm kind of with, with them in that regard. And I don't think people should be held back on, without achieving certain level of accomplishment or whatever. But, but, I, but I do believe that competency that developed over time uh, really does matter. And, uh, things get difficult, right? So there's a saying that I'll paraphrase by uh, Thomas Edison. It says, most people give up just before they were about to succeed. Right. And I believe that to be true. My, one of my, my strengths have been the determination. There's a fine line between sort of working and banging your head against the wall and, and not giving up. And, and I'm not one of those guys who gives up easily. And, and that has served me well. And, and I think that that hard work, if you will, the, sometimes seeking the work that others don't want to do mm -hmm. is actually fertile ground for a lot of young people. Right. So everybody wants the sort of lucrative, kind of prestigious roles inside of companies. Well, and you can pursue those, and I certainly have over time, but, but I also think that there are jobs that need to be done. And when somebody stands up and says that they're willing to go do that, apply what I call three simple rules, which is telling somebody something needs to be done. Second rule is going and doing it. And then mm -hmm. third rule, which most people forget, is making sure you told who you were gonna do it, that you did it. And so people say, well, that seems rather simple. I said, look, I built a whole career around telling people what I was going to do, doing it, and then telling them that it was done. And they, they say, really? I said, well, tell, let me ask you, how many people worked for you that you asked to go do something who never tell you it was done? And you wonder if they ever did it. Very good. Well, that leads me into the next question. How did you grow so fast? Well, I, you know, look, I, tr truth of the matter is, is I was what my wife would refer to as fully retired. I, I thought it was semi-retired. I think I was faking it a little bit. I was at home and it was the, the last previous presidential election when uh, Obama was seeking re-election and Mitt Romney was a challenger. And I, uh, uh, frankly, was uh, evaluating what I was going to do for, for business and it was after the election that I, I realized that sitting home and sort of watching these political debates of sorts was going to drive me crazy and I needed to get engaged in something. And I wanted to get engaged in something that where I, I did have some competency in spite of the fact that I had been dabbling in real estate investing. And I'm a, an enthusiastic car mm -hmm. buff, if you will, and that kind of stuff. I looked at opportunities in the market where I thought there was a chance to uh, exploit. And so there's a intersection of technology that's going on. There's this, and it, and it comes into a couple of different uh, buckets. There's this cloud computing bucket, mm -hmm. if you will, right? Where 
primarily computing power is moving from customer premise, meaning a customer location to a data centralized data center where people have remote access to it, right? And that, that includes not only kind of CPU power, but storage and memory, things like that. There's this concept of uh, networking that makes all those data centers very relevant. A data center without any networking is worthless because you can't get to it. And so not only those data centers have to have compute power, they have to be connected to other data centers and other users, right? And it's that intersection that Anexio, our company, is trying to get in the middle of. And uh, if you sort of uh, add one more dimension of impact to that and this idea of blockchain, uh, this idea of a distributed ledger mm -hmm. across a decentralized network is really very prevalent to the kinds of skills that Anexio has. Our growth has come from getting aligned with those trends and serving our customers with relentless support. So in essence, we are looking for long-term lifetime relationships with customers. We find ourselves very often working against our own economic interests, frankly, where customers will come and want to buy something in a quantity that we believe is probably not appropriate or, or uh, inefficient. And so we work with them to, to right-size their purchases, if you will. Mm -hmm. we, we work with them in, to introduce financial models that are more effective for them as opposed to maybe what's effective for us. And what that has done is allow us to uh, have relationships that we uh, initially uh, engage with, have grown over time, and uh, give us lots of potential in the future. And that's a frankly, a formula that I, I learned going back to the very early stages of my life. You mentioned you were an early MCI customer. I can tell almost instantly that if you were an early MCI customer, that was a time when it didn't work particularly well, <laughs> right? And, and, and it was because, you know, it was the best we could do at the time. It was 50% uh, less than AT&T at the mm -hmm. time, right? And, and that company migrated from a low-cost provider to a global communications provider over the course of 20 years that I worked there. Mm -hmm. and, and then during that 20 year period, manifestation that occurred was remarkable to watch, right? And it wasn't just technology and it wasn't just sort of explosion of communications. That company was literally known as a law firm with an antenna on top. It was uh, regulatory challenges, all kinds of court rulings, market shifts that made it very difficult. That makes you scrappy. Right. And uh, that has served me well. When you look back, you know, I ask all my interviewees, what would you do differently? You know, you have a lot of experience. When I left MCI, I left MCI just prior to WorldCom buying. The reason why I left was that I, I don't think anybody could have predicted disaster that occurred after that acquisition. But it was clear to me that MCI was going to be a different company. And we had at MCI had acquired probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 companies over the time that I was there. As I got more senior in my role, I participated in due diligence and integration teams. And it became clear to me that when WorldCom was buying MCI, that we were going to be on the other side of that. That wasn't particularly appealing. But the reason why I hung around so long is I had grown up in business with a lot of people who I admired and learned a lot from. And I felt like by leaving, I would be abandoning. It was almost a camaraderie that maybe exists within sports if you're on a team for your whole career or if you're maybe in the military and you worked with a group of people, you know, in very difficult, stressful situations. Well, they clearly existed. When I finally decided to leave, and it took a lot to leave, I being recruited and I ultimately found myself having to put up or shut up because I, I gave the uh, recruiter sort of a list of demands that if they were to do all this, 
I would take the job and guess what? They did it. Right. So I'm now like, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> I took the job and here's what I learned almost instantly that what I knew and I had taken for granted at the company I just worked for was very valuable to a lot of people, particularly I went to work for AT&T at that time, that if I had to do it all over again, I would have left sooner. Even though I had enjoyed and learned a lot where I was, my career accelerated much quicker, leaving a company that I had worked so long for. To some degree, I may have suppressed my own personal growth by staying in a single company for so long. It also adds to what I talked about early in our conversation about, about that confidence, right? One of the things that made me reluctant to leave was not sure at the time whether I would actually be successful in a different environment. Once I realized that not only could I be successful, but I would thrive in a, in a different environment, I wish I would have learned that a little earlier in my life. It, by the way, it's not a mistake in the, mm -hmm. the fact that I stayed there. I, I left, I was vice president of network operations, had rose the ranks of clerical duties, frankly. So I have no regret, clearly something I would do differently. Tony, I want to thank you for sharing your insights and information on Inexio with its full range of IT services to support our listeners' business IT data center needs and infrastructure and outside of their data center. From networking hardware to applications, with your team of certified experts, will monitor, manage, maintain your IT environment. Please visit Tony's website at anexio.com. Again, this is www.anexio.com. Tony, tell our listeners how they can contact you to continue a conversation. Yes, I will make myself available via email, and it's tony at anexio.com, or call directly to my office at 919-607-2055. I love to talk to people who bring curiosity, and I have found that the one thing you can't give away is kindness. So if I could be of help to somebody, I'm glad to do it. Really pleased with uh, the opportunity to speak with you today, Cliff. Are you still looking to do additional acquisitions at this point? We are. It's actually a very important uh, part of our strategy. Uh, we believe that there's still lots of consolidation. If, if you watch the industry in general, mm -hmm. there have been lots of M&A activity at the very high end of the market with very large companies buying other very large companies. And what that does is create more room underneath them for growth of companies like us, more niche players, if you will, to satisfy the needs of the market. Capital is fairly abundant in the marketplace, whether that's through uh, private equity or, or debt. Uh, we have been primarily uh, initially funded with my own money, and then we uh, have access to uh, debt markets, uh, particularly bank financing of late, but we are now entertaining uh, raising private equity capital through a sort of a unique offering that should help us further accelerate through the acquisition of companies that will either expand our geographic footprint, expand our service product portfolio, provide uh, referenceable customers in highly regulated industry vertical markets that are meaningful in terms of establishing scale and uh, reputation. Excellent. You've reached the end of another episode of Angel Investors Network podcast. Please feel free to contact me, Cliff Locks, on LinkedIn and angelinvestorsnetwork.com. We've been serving the needs of high net worth investors and entrepreneurs since 1997.